Well, it's time to wish our listeners who are celebrating a birthday today on this Wednesday, November 15th of 2023. We have two listeners we're aware of, Joan Hook from Williamsburg and Sonia Sigeti from Sioux City. All of us here at Iris would like to wish both of you a very happy birthday. And this is a reminder you're listening to Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service. If you're hearing us on your television on Iowa PBS and you're not a registered IRIS user, please give us a call at 515-243-6833 so we can get you on our list. We need to know who is listening in order to keep our services free. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. Kurt D. Coster, age 61, from Urbandale, peacefully passed away on November 12th. Family and friends are invited to pay their respects during the visitation on Thursday, November 16th at Caldwell Parish from 4 p.m. to 7 p.m. A mass of Christian burial will be held at 10 a.m. Friday, November 17th at St. Francis of Assisi Catholic Church in West Des Moines. Following the service, a lunch will be hosted in the parish hall. The interment will be a private family ceremony. Kurt entered this world in Fort Dodge, Iowa, on a chilly February day in 1962, the firstborn of Daryl and Phyllis Coster, who welcomed him with boundless love. He began his educational journey at Fort Dodge Senior High School, graduating in 1980, and continued on to the Iowa Central Community College, where he earned his associate's degree in business. Furthering his education, he pursued a finance degree from the University of Iowa. After graduation, Kurt ventured to Indianapolis where he worked as a grain merchandiser. In 1990, he founded AgriSource, a testament to his entrepreneurial spirit and dedication to the agricultural industry. Kurt met his wife, Denise Coster McDaniel, in 1997 and at Clive After Five, a chance encounter that blossomed into a beautiful 25-year marriage. Their shared journey was marked by a deep commitment to family, and Kurt and Denise eagerly anticipated the joys and challenges of parenthood. The arrival of two sets of twins, plus one, brought both joy and chaos. Kurt was a valued member of the Felon McDermott Syndrome Foundation Board for many years, where he contributed creative fundraising ideas for research. His oldest daughter, Kylie, with whom he shared a special bond, was Felon McDermott, had had Felon McDermott syndrome. He will be remembered by his love for Hawkeye football, his never-ending pursuit of the perfect old-fashioned, and his habit of gauging the yield of every cornfield that he crossed paths with. He found joy in playing golf, a favorite pastime shared with Denise and their children, and took pride in perfecting his yard. A tenacious fighter, Kurt faced health challenges throughout his life with remarkable resilience. His journey was made lighter by the unwavering support of dedicated friends and family who stood by his side, offering comfort and strength during difficult times. Kurt was preceded in death by his father, Darrell Coster, and then his grandparents, Alfred and Ruth Coster, Richard and Ruth Cobbinger. He is survived by his beloved wife, Denise, and their children, Cole, Brandon, Kylie, Caitlin, and Brianna. In addition to his immediate family, Kurt leaves behind his mother, Phyllis Coster, and three brothers, Brent, Craig and Steve, each holding a special place in his heart. Memorials may be directed to the Felon McDermott Syndrome Foundation. Michael Schuling, age 60, of Wiggins, Colorado, passed away on November 3rd. He was born on July 8th of 1963 in Des Moines. A ceremony to celebrate Mike's life will be held at Fort Des Moines Open Bible, located at 1116 Army Post Road in Des Moines, on Friday, November 17th at 11 a.m., and again on Saturday from 1 to 3 p.m. Janice Jan Marie Jennings, 81, from Des Moines, passed away on November 11th in Des Moines. Visitation will be held from 6 to 8 p.m. on Thursday, November 16th at Hamilton's Funeral Home at 605 Lyon Street, Des Moines. Funeral services will begin at 11 a.m. Friday, November 17, also at Hamilton's, with burial to follow at Laurel Hill Cemetery. Jan was born in Des Moines and was one of seven children. She lived in Des Moines all her life and worked for a local insurance company until she retired. Jan enjoyed spending time with her family and grandchildren, playing the slot machines at the casino, and traveling with family and friends. She also loves sharing her political views, and you were likely to get an earful if that subject was brought up. 
She is survived by her husband, Gilbert Ellis Jennings, sons Jeff Jennings and Scott Jennings, and her sisters Marilyn Hewitt and Jeannie Kubler, and brothers Philip Carrico and Pete Carrico, four grandchildren and many nieces, nephews, and cousins. She was preceded in death by her parents, Ralph and Maxine Carrico, and two brothers, Jerry Carrico and Ronald Carrico. Condolences may be expressed at www.hamiltonsfuneralhome.com. Nels Don Celestin Nord, 84, of rural Oskaloosa, passed away at Mahaska's Hospice Serenity House in Oskaloosa on November 11th after a year-long battle with pancreatic cancer. Donnie, as he was called by his family, was born on January 12, 1939, at the Iowa Lutheran Hospital in Des Moines. Donnie was the second of five children of Dr. Don H. Nord, M.D., and Celeste Mathis Nord, R.N. Donnie was raised in Huxley, Iowa, and graduated from Huxley High School in 1956. He attended the University of Iowa and University of Arkansas. After attending college, Donnie joined the Marine Corps Reserves from 1962 to 1968. He went into farming, raising Charlotte cattle and thoroughbred horses with his brother Rick on a farm near Rearwalls. On June 9, 1979, he was united in marriage to Donna Cancellar at the, at the uh, Lutheran Church in Des Moines. In 1985, he went to work in the transportation business as operations manager for Ruan Transportation and was a dedicated employee for over 30 years. Donnie's passion was taking care of his beautiful homestead in rural Mahaska County. He had a passion for flowers and was proud of his manicured lawn. He enjoyed tending to his large garden and watching birds. He was a member of the American Legion in Des Moines and a lifetime member of the Huxley. He loved going to all the Huxley High School reunions and never missed one of them. Donnie is survived by his wife, Don, Donna Nord, of 44 years, and her children, Angie, Rich, and Denny. Brother Mark Nord of Polk City, Nels Nord of Huxley, and Rick Nord of Norwalk, as well as 12 nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, Sister Karen Dunn, and her husband Leo Dunn. Per Donnie's wishes, his body has been cremated. A graveside memorial service and burial will be held Thursday, November 16th, at 1 p.m. in the Cambridge Cemetery at Cambridge, Iowa, with Reverend Tim Jacobson officiating. The Bates Funeral Chapel of, Oscu of Oskaloosa is in charge of the arrangements. Donnie was a passionate cat lover. In lieu of flowers, donations can be made to Stevens Memorial Animal Shelter at Oskaloosa, Iowa. Centenarian Warren Williams, Will Warren Harley Will Wilson, was born an only child to Jack and Goldie Stagman Wilson on March 3, 1922, in West Bend. He grew up surrounded by friends, neighbors, and extended family, and played basketball, piano, and trumpet when he wasn't going uptown for ice cream and the talkies. After high school, he passed the civil service exam and headed to Washington, D.C. for a job at the Department of Treasury. Drafted into World War II in 1942, he served with Patton's Third Army in England, France, and Germany until 1945. Back in Washington, he landed a job with the Internal Revenue Service, and during one of the agency's social, he asked a pretty girl from Alabama to dance. Warren and Alice Stevenson were married on August 15, 1947. The GI Bill took the couple to Des Moines and Warren to Drake University. He turned an accounting degree into a 33-year career with Farm Bureau Insurance. The couple celebrated 50 years of marriage in 1997. By then, Alice's health began to decline, the couple retreated from most activities, and Warren became a devoted caregiver until her death in 2005. He remained in their West Des Moines townhome, visited often by family. A quiet, stoic, no-nonsense, no-fuss guy, Warren coveted his independence by living on his own and renewing his driver's license each year, including this one, so he could continue cruising his Chevy through the McDonald's drive through for a McRiddle and a senior coffee. Warren is survived by his daughter, Belinda Vitale, Barbara Williams, and Beth, Wils and Beth Wilson, grandchildren, four grandchildren, and five great-grandchildren. Warren was preceded in death by his daughter Beverly Wilson Landers and his wife Alice. Services will be pri private with family members only. In lieu of flowers, consider honoring Warren with a donation to Every Step Hospice. 
at everystephospice.org slash donate. Memories and condolences can be shared with the Wilson family at mclarensresthavenchapel.com. That concludes today's obituaries. Turning now to Nation and World Extra. House votes to prevent shutdown. Speaker Johnson relies on Democrats for help. The House voted overwhelmingly Tuesday to prevent a government shutdown after new Republican Speaker Mike Johnson was forced to reach across the aisle to Democrats when hard-right conservatives revolted against his plan. Johnson's proposal to temporarily fund the government into the new year passed on a bipartisan 336-95 to tally but 93 Republicans voted against it. It was the first time the new speaker had to force vital legislation through the House, and he showed a willingness to leave his right-flank Republicans behind. The same political move that cost the last House speaker, Kevin McCarthy, his job just weeks ago. For now, Johnson of Louisiana appeared on track for a better outcome. His approach, which the Senate is expected to approve by week's end, effectively pushes a final showdown over government funding to the new year. Making sure that government stays in operation is a matter of conscience for all of us. We owe that to the American people, Johnson said earlier Tuesday at a news conference at the Capitol. The new Republican leader faced the same political problem that led to McCarthy's ouster. Angry, frustrated, hard-right GOP lawmakers rejected his approach, demanded budget cuts, and voted against the plan. Rather than the applause and handshakes that usually follow passage of a bill, Several hardline conservatives animately confronted the speaker as they exited the chamber. Without enough support from his Republican majority, Johnson had little choice but to rely on Democrats to ensure passage to keep the federal government running. Johnson's proposal puts forward a unique, critics say bizarre, two-part process that temporarily funds some federal agencies to January 19th and others to February 2nd. It's continuing resolution, or CR, that comes without any of the deep cuts conservatives had demanded. It also fails to include President Joe Biden's request for nearly $106 billion for Ukraine, Israel border security, and other supplemental funds. We're not surrendering, Johnson assured after a closed-door meeting of House Republicans Tuesday morning, vowing he would not support another stopgap, but you have to choose fights you can win. Johnson, who announced his endorsement Tuesday of Donald Trump as the Republican nominee for president, hit the airwaves to sell his approach and met privately Monday night with the Conservative Freedom Caucus. Johnson says the innovative approach would position House Republicans to go into the fight for deeper spending cuts in the new year, but many Republicans are skeptical there will be any better outcome in January. Representative Chip Roy, a Texas Republican who was part of the House Freedom Caucus, did not hold back on his opinion of the stopgap bill. Quote, it's crap. He said he would give a little bit of room to Johnson, who was three weeks into the job of Speaker, but Roy threatened to seize control of the House floor if conservative demands for cuts are not met in the months ahead. The opposition from hardline conservatives left Johnson with few other options than to skip what's typically a party-only procedural vote and rely on another process that requires a two-thirds tally with Democrats for passage. House Democratic leader Hakeem Jeffries said Democrats were willing to find common ground with the Republicans while pushing back against Republican extremism whenever necessary. In a statement with other top Democratic leaders, Jeffries pointed out that a federal shutdown would hurt the economy, our national security, and everyday Americans. He had noted in a letter to colleagues that the GOP package met Democratic demands to keep funding at current levels without steep reductions or divisive Republican policy priorities. Winning bipartisan approval of a continuing resolution is the same move that led McCarthy's right hard right flank to oust him in October, days after the September 30 vote to avert a federal shutdown. For now, Johnson appears to be benefiting from a political honeymoon in one of his first big tests on the job. Look, we're going to trust the Speaker's move here, said Representative Drew Ferguson, Republican from Georgia. But Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, a McCarthy ally who opposed his ouster, said Johnson should be held to the same standard. Quote, what's the point in throwing out one speaker if nothing changes? The only way to make sure that real changes happen is to make the red line stay the same for every speaker, end quote. 
The Senate, where Democrats have a slim majority, has signaled its willingness to accept Johnson's package ahead of Friday's deadline to fund the government. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell called the House package a solution and said he expected it to pass Congress with bipartisan support. It's nice to see us working together to avoid a government shutdown, he said. But McConnell, Republican from Kentucky, has noted that Congress still has work to do toward Biden's request to provide U.S. military aid for Ukraine and Israel and for other needs. Senators are trying to devise a separate package to fund U.S. supplies for the overseas wars and to bolster border security. But it remains a work in progress. If approved, passage of the continuing resolution would be less than triumph capstone to the House GOP's first year in the majority. The Republicans have worked tirelessly to cut federal government spending only to find their own GOP colleagues unwilling to go along with the most conservative priorities. Two of the Republican bills collapsed last week as moderates revolted. Instead, the gut Republicans are left funding the government essentially on autopilot at the levels that were set in the bipartisan fashion at the end of 2022 when Democrats had control of Congress, but the two parties came together to agree on budget terms. All that could change in the new year, when 1% cuts across the board to all departments would be triggered if Congress failed to agree to a new budget term and pass the traditional appropriations bills to fund the government by springtime. The 1% automatic cuts, which would take hold in April, are despised by all sides. Republicans say they are not enough. Democrats say they are too steep. And many lawmakers prefer to boost defense funds. But they are part of the debt deal McCarthy and Biden struck earlier this year. The idea was to push Congress to do better. The legislation also extends farm bill programs through September, the end of the current fiscal year. That addition was an important win for some farm state lawmakers. Representative Mark Polkin, Democrat from Wisconsin, for example, warned that without the extension, milk prices would have soared and hurt producers back in his home state. The farm bill extension was the sweetest or biggest sweetener for me, said Polkin. Democrats take aim at Tuberville's blockade. Around 400 military nominations are on hold. Senate Democrats pushed ahead Tuesday with a resolution that would allow for the quick confirmation of hundreds of military nominees. An attempt to maneuver around a blockade from Senator Tommy Tuberville over a Pentagon abortion policy. Almost 400 military nominations are in limbo, and the number is growing due to Tuberville's blanket hold on confirmations and promotions for senior military officers. Despite bipartisan outrage and pressure from members of his own party, the Alabama senator is dug in as he fights the Pentagon to end its abortion policy. It's a stance that has left key national security positions unfilled in military families with an uncertain path forward. Quote, there's been a lot of negativity and dysfunction in the Senate these days, but Senator Tuberville has single-handedly brought the Senate to a new low, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said at the Senate Rules Committee meeting where the resolution was approved. The panel voted 9-7 to seven to approve a resolution that would allow the Senate to confirm groups of military nominees at once for the remainder of the congressional term. The Senate has traditionally confirmed large batches of military offices together, but that process can be upended by just one senator who objects. The resolution will now head to the Senate floor for a vote, where Democrats will need at least nine Republican votes for passage. While Republicans on the Rules Panel oppose the measure, arguing that the move could erode the powers of the minority in the Senate, some have signaled they might change their minds if Stubberill does not drop the hold before then. Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell, who criticized Tuberville's hold before the committee vote, said he would oppose a Democratic resolution, quote, at this particular moment, end quote, but he did not say whether he might vote for it on the floor. Of Tuberville, McConnell said that, unfortunately, our colleague has chosen instead to exert his leverage on career military officers with no influence over this administration's policy priorities. Tuberville has said he is open to negotiating an end to his holds on almost 400 military nominees, but he first announced, which he first announced in February, but he has not yet signaled that he will drop them. Republicans who have criticized Tuberville have suggested that they may try and persuade him to hold up civilian nominees instead of military nominations, or take legal actions against the department, an option that Tuberville has said he is considering. 
They've also said they will try to force more votes on the nominations if he doesn't lift the holds. Tuberville is blocking the nominations in opposition to new Pentagon rules that allow reimbursement for travel when a service member has to go out of state to get an abortion or other reproductive care. President Joe Biden's administration instituted the new rules after the Supreme Court overturned the national right to an abortion, and some states have limited or banned the procedure. Quote, I simply cannot stand by idly by while the Biden administration injects politics in our military from the White House and spends taxpayers' dollars on abortion, Tuberville said, when his GOP colleagues confronted him on the floor. And also from Washington, GOP Senator challenges Teamsters head to a fight. Fiery exchange takes place at congressional hearing. A congressional hearing devolved into an angry confrontation between a senator and a witness on Tuesday after Republican Senator Mark Wayne Mullen of Oklahoma challenged Sean O'Brien, the president of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters, to stand your butt up and settle longstanding differences right there in the room. Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders, the chairman of the Senate panel that was holding the hearing, yelled at Mullen to sit down after he challenged O'Brien to a fight. Mullen had stood up from his seat at the die and appeared to start taking his ring off. This is the time, this is the place, Mullen told O'Brien after reading a series of critical tweets O'Brien had sent about him in the past. If you want to run your mouth, we can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. The two men never came face to face in the hearing room, but they hurled insults at each other for around six minutes as Sanders repeatedly banged his gavel and tried to cut them off. Sanders, a longtime union ally, pleaded with them to focus on the economic issues that were the focus of the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearing, which Sanders was holding to review how unions help working families. Quote, you are a United States Senator. Sanders yelled at Mullen at one point. Mullen, a frequent critic of union leadership, has sparred before with the union head. Earlier this year, O'Brien posted repeatedly about Mullen on X, formerly known as Twitter, calling him a moron and full of expletives after Mullen criticized O'Brien at a hearing for what Mullen said were intimidation tactics. In another social media post, which Mullen read aloud at Tuesday's hearing, O'Brien appeared to challenge Mullen to a fight. You know where to find me, any place, any time, cowboy, O'Brien had posted. The exchange escalated from there with Mullen telling O'Brien that this is the place and asking him if he wanted to do it right now. I'd love to do it right now, O'Brien said. Mullen replied, well, stand your butt up. You stand your butt up, O'Brien shouted back. When Mullen got up from his chair, appearing right for, ready for a fight, Sanders yelled at him to sit down banged his gavel several times and told both of them to stop talking. This is a hearing, and God knows the American people have enough contempt for Congress. Let's not make it worse, Sanders said. As Mullen persisted, O'Brien retorted, quote, you challenged me to a cage match, acting like a 12-year-old schoolyard bully, end quote. The two traded angry insults for several more minutes, each called the other a thug, with Mullen at one point suggesting they fight for charity at an event next spring, repeating an offer he made earlier this year on social media. O'Brien declined, instead suggested they meet for coffee and work out their differences. Mullen accepted, but the two kept shouting at each other until the next senator, Democratic Senator Maggie Hazen of New Hampshire, started her questioning by talking over them. After the hearing, Sanders called the exchange absurd. Kansas Secretary of State's building is evacuated over suspicious substance. The Kansas Secretary of State's office received a letter Tuesday containing what Secretary Scott Schwab called a suspicious substance. Officials evacuated the building for the rest of the day. Schwab's office serves as the state's top elections authority, and the incident occurred less than a week after election offices in at least five states received threatening mail. Some of that mail contained the potentially dangerous opioid fentanyl. The Kansas Bureau of Investigation, taking the lead in the case, did not provide further details about the letter received Tuesday, and Schwab did not say what the suspicious substance was. Quote, with recent events, we take such things as a suspicious substance very seriously, press. Our team is trained, if they see something, say something. The KBI is working with the Kansas Highway Patrol, the State Fire Marshal's Office, and the State Department of Health and Environment 
Spokesperson Melissa Underwood said in an emailed statement. She said authorities evacuated the building, which also houses a Kansas Attorney General's office, out of an abundance of caution. The building that was evacuated is located near the State House. The investigation is ongoing, Underwood said, adding that Kansas has experienced only one such incident so far. An officer inside the building Tuesday afternoon said it was still being secured. Two people who worked there went to the main office to have officers retrieve items left behind. They declined to comment afterward. Local television station WIBW reported that its crews saw Topeka Fire Department hazardous material teams entering the building shortly after it was evacuated. They were gone by the afternoon. An ex-officer Shelvin makes another bid to overturn federal conviction in the Floyd case. Former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin is making another attempt to overturn his federal civil rights conviction in the 2020 murder of George Floyd, saying new evidence shows he didn't cause Floyd's death. In a motion filed in federal court Monday, Chauvin said he never would have pleaded guilty to the charge in 2021 if he had known about the theories of a Kansas forensic pathologist with whom he began corresponding in February. Chauvin is asking the judge who presided over his trial to throw out his conviction and order a new trial, or at least an evidentiary hearing. Floyd, who was black, died on May 25, 2020, after Chauvin, who was white, kneeled on his neck for nine and a half minutes on the street outside a convenience store where Floyd tried to pass a counterfeit $20 bill. A bystander video captured Floyd's fading cries of, I can't breathe. Floyd's death touched off nationwide protests, some of which turned violent and forced a national reckoning with police brutality and, and racism. Chauvin, who is serving a 21-year sentence at a federal prison in Arizona, filed the request without a lawyer. He says Dr. William Schetzel of Topeka, Kansas, told him that he believes Floyd died not from asphyxia from Chauvin's actions, but from complications of a rare tumor called a paraganglioma that can cause a fatal surge of adrenaline. The pathologist did not examine Floyd's body, but reviews autopsy reports. Quote, I can't go to my grave with what I know, Schatzer told the Associated Press by phone on Monday, explaining why he reached out to Chauvin. He went on to say, I just want the truth. Chauvin further alleges that Schatzel reached out to his trial attorney, Eric Nelson, in 2021, as well as a judge and prosecution in the state court murder trial, but that Nelson never told him about the pathologist or his ideas. He also alleges that Nelson failed to challenge the constitutionality of the federal charge. But Chauvin claims in his motion that no jury would have convicted him if he had heard the pathologist's evidence. And with that, it's time for us to take a break. For the last 90 minutes, your readers have been Barbara Hack and Dennis May. It's been our pleasure to read for you. And like I said, we'll now take a short break to allow our next readers to get into place.
Welcome back. Your new readers are Pam Rhodes and myself, Scott Splavik. We'll continue with articles from the Des Moines Register and USA Today. Here's Pam with our first article. People in crisis need to know about 988. If you or someone you know is in need of mental health resources and support, please call, text, or chat the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline or visit 988lifeline.org for 24-7 access to free and confidential services. The most well-known phone number in the country is 911. When 911 launched in 1968, its original internet was to alert responders to emergency situations such as fire, crime, and accidents. Today, though, about two-thirds of the calls to 911 are for non-emergency situations like power outages or general requests for information. What time is it? What day is recycling collected? And though a 911 call taker may be able to tell someone what time it is or refer them to a public works department, the situation can be quickly become far more complicated when community members call in with on or on behalf of someone undergoing a behavioral health crisis. Call centers for 911 have a more technical name, Public Safety Answering Points, or PSAPS. People who work at these centers can do a lot, but they have limited resources and training to address behavioral health issues. That is in part why, more than a year ago, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline became the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. Transmitting, transitioning to a three-digit number and expanding its focus to include mental health crises. Rather than expecting that a person experiencing a crisis could remember a 10-digit number, the goal was to create an easy-to-market and easy-to-remember number with the hope that more people in crisis would reach out to 988 for help. And there are a lot of indications that things are going well, according to a 46% increase in the number of calls answered in the first year. Even so, a recent survey found that just 13% of Americans know of both 988's existence and the reasons why someone might contact 988. Instead, 911 continues to be a default option when a person is experiencing suicidal thoughts or when a loved one with a mental health condition has become agitated or aggressive. Some of my research has been to show how the jails become the default mental health facility for people experiencing acute distress, even when these individuals could be reasonably served within their community instead. How can systems be improved to ensure that these calls result in people getting help rather than arrested or killed? Nationally, efforts to launch 988 ramped up slowly. In the meantime, some jurisdictions have focused on trying to meet the needs of those either in crisis or those calling in on behalf of someone else in crisis who end up calling 911 and not 988. In Los Angeles County, the police department diverts behavioral calls coming into 911 to the local 988 call center in Durham, North Carolina. A crisis call division unit staffed by clinicians has been embedded within the 911 call center. Some states have passed policies that require coordination between 911 and crisis call centers, as Virginia did with the Marcus Davis, P David Peters Act. Named for a young black teacher killed by police during a mental health crisis, it requires that all counties develop enhanced and coordinated crisis services including establishing a regional crisis call center that coordinate with 911 and outlining a role for mobile response teams, police and clinician co-response teams, and police officers who have participated in crisis intervention training. These efforts, along with those in L.A. and Durham, are building a no-wrong-door approach, whether a person is in crisis to call 988 or is familiar only with 911, their call will end up making it to a behavioral health professional. However, this coordination between 911 and emergency mental health services remains limited. 
When there's no state requirement to develop a coordinated process, as is the case in most states, it means that a community must spearhead the effort from the ground up. Such an effort requires funding, collaboration, and infrastructure. It also necessitates more successful models to point to as guides. Even in cases where there is a state requirement to coordinate between mental health services and 911 calls, setting up such complicated systems can take years before they are up and running. Almost half of Americans are afraid that 911 is not a safe option to call for someone undergoing a behavioral health problem, and with good reason, given the many stories of people, often people of color, being killed when police respond to a mental illness crisis. If someone is afraid to call 911 and is un and is unaware of its more appropriate neighbor on the keypad 988, they're left to navigate the complex system of community mental health care, which is plagued by staffing and fun funding shortages. People from marginalized communities whose fears about 911 are the most well-funded and have the most limited access to, to community care. The fact that so many Americans are afraid to call 911 and have no good option of community-based mental health care highlights the ongoing need for 988. Indeed, These are some of the key reasons for its existence, but it's clear that some kind of broader advertising and outreach campaign about 988 is as necessary today as it was in July 22nd, 2022. People simply can't call what they don't when they don't know what. Excuse me. People simply can't call what they don't know what to call, and yet the need is there, and the need is often desperate. This article is written by Stephanie Brooks Holliday, who is a cl clinical psychologist and senior behavioral scientist at Rand Corporation, whose work focuses on the intersection of mental health and the legal system. Our next opinion from the USA Today section is entitled "Netanyahu Sacrificed Israel for Power: What Would Trump Do?" This is written by Uriel Heilman, who is an opinion contributor and a native of New Rochelle, New York, who now lives in Israel and is a journalist for the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. After Hamas terrorists launched their brutal surprise attack in southern Israel on October the 7th, many observers tried to contextualize the event as Israel's 9/11. It's a bad comparison. For one thing, as President Joe Biden noted in Tel Aviv, the death toll of Israelis, more than 1,200, represents a far larger proportion of Israel's population of 9 million than the 9/11 attacks did in the U United States, where nearly 3,000 were killed in the year 2001. An equivalent U.S. attack would mean more than 50,000 deaths. But the real flaw in the comparison is that a successful Hamas infiltration of Israel from Gaza was the exact scenario for which Israel was supposed to be prepared, not some unpredictable event. While Hamas bears sole blame for its ruthless attack, Israel's failure to anticipate it or respond adequately during the day, during that day, while terrorists massacred Israeli civilians virtually unimpeded, constitutes a cat. Catastrophic systemic failure of Israel's government, intelligence, and military. It's hard not to fault Benjamin Netanyahu, the man who, as Israel's prime minister for most of the past 15 years, has empowered extremists, degraded Israel's democratic institutions, formed a government marked by dysfunction and incompetence, and stoked intermediate conflict. There's a warning here for what could happen in America. Former President Donald Trump checks each one of those boxes too. The Netanyahu government's ineptitude extended to a mistaken assessment that Hamas wasn't interested in confrontation with Israel, and Netanyahu's longtime doctrine of letting, Ham letting Hamas stay in charge of Gaza so he could avoid making any concessions to the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, on the grounds that the PA does not represent all Palestinians. Things in Israel got really bad when Netanyahu, in order to retake the premiership last December, following a hiatus in the opposition, 
invited far-right parties into his coalition and appointed their leaders to key positions. Israel's security minister, far-right Jewish power party leader Itamar Ben-Gavir, is a hooligan who, as a young man, threatened Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin shortly before his 1995 assassination and has a habit of whipping out his handgun and threatening to shoot Israeli Arabs or Palestinians. The man in charge of Jewish settlement policy in the West Bank, Finance Minister Bazelel Smotrich, in March called for Israel to wipe out the West Bank Palestinian city of Huwara following a Palestinian terror attack. As violence from the West Bank escalated this year with Palestinian terrorists perpetrating shooting and car ramming attacks against Israelis, the Netanyahu government moved army forces away from Gaza and into the West Bank while turning a blind eye to retaliatory attacks by Jewish settlers against West Bank Palestinians. Smotrich also has incited against Israel's two million Arab citizens, saying Israel should have expelled all the country's Arabs when it had the chance. When the homicide rate in Israeli Arab towns surged to record levels this year, in part due to the unchecked proliferation of armed, organized Arab criminal gangs, Smotrich responded by suspending funding to Arab municipalities. In Parliament, the government spent the year pushing through a controversial judicial reform package limiting the power of the Supreme Court, which set off the largest protest movement in Israel's history. Border Patrol police, usually focused on Palestinians, redeployed to protests in Tel Aviv. Economists warned of grave danger to Israel's economy. The shekel's value eroded and several technology companies announced they were leaving the country. Israel was teetering. Amid these flashing warning signs, Netanyahu seemed content to let Israel slide into the abyss. Extremists dictated government policy. Netanyahu refused to compromise on judicial reform and inexperienced political cronies took over government ministries. Buffeted by multiple corporation, or excuse me, Buffeted by multiple corruption trials, Netanyahu was determined to cling to power at all costs. It represented his best shot for staying out of prison. Does any of this sound familiar? If this were a Hollywood script, Trump would be suing for copyright infringement. Here's the lesson for America. In Israel, Netanyahu kept chipping away until the country finally broke. He mismanaged the Hamas threat, and now southern Israel is a war zone. The country's homicide rate is at record levels, and some Arab municipalities say they essentially are ruled by powerful criminal gangs. With the Gaza Strip aflame, there is real danger of another outbreak of violence between Arab Israelis and Jewish Israelis, as happened during the last Gaza-Israel conflict in May of the year 2021. Violence between Palestinians and Israelis in the West Bank could explode at any moment. Many Israelis say they have lost faith in the state. America, too, is spiraling into an abyss. And if things keep going in this direction, its reckoning may come, too. Americans cannot agree on basic facts, such as who was responsible for the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol on January 6, 2021. Nearly 70% of Republicans say the 2020 presidential election was stolen. The Republican Party has become a cult of personality where fidelity to Trump outweighs any core principle and senior elected officials must perpetuate populist falsehoods to hold office. In state legislatures and in the courts, extremists are trying to curb voter rights. In this context, the unchecked flooding of America with military-style assault weapons threatens disaster even greater than those that already have turned American schools, movie theaters, and entertainment venues into killing fields. It does not require great leaps of imagination to envision the explosion of this powder keg. 
America is a deeply divided, highly armed country that cannot agree on fundamental truths. Too many politicians obtain or maintain power by stoking fear, division, and falsehood. The ingredients for catastrophe are present. Hopefully, the disaster of October the 7th will serve as a wake-up call in which Israelis, soldiers included, save their country from the internal rot their leaders have sown. Americans, too, should wake up and save their country before it's too late. Pam? Turning now to sports, here are the sports on TV, Wednesday, November 15th, and all of these are in Eastern Time Zone. College basketball, men's, 6.30 p.m., FS1, Albany at Seton Hall at 7 p.m., BTN, Merrimack at Ohio State at 8.30 p.m., FS1, Georgetown at Rutgers at 10 p.m., Pac-12N, LIU Post at UCLA. This is now College Basketball Women. At 7 p.m., ACCN, Northwestern at Notre Dame. College Football, 7 p.m., ESPN2, Buffalo at Miami, Ohio. ESPNU, Central Michigan at Ohio. College Golf, 2.30 p.m., Golf, the Southwest Airlines Showcase of Cedar Crest, Final Round, Cedar Crest Golf Course, Marysville, Washington. College Volleyball Women's, 8 p.m., SECN, Arkansas at Mississippi at 9 p.m., BTN, Ohio State at Illinois, Golf, 2.30 p.m., the Southwest Airlines Showcase at Cedar Crest Final Round, Cedar Crest Golf Course, Marysville, Washington, 2 a.m. Thursday. DP Golf, DP World Tour, the DP World Tour Championship, First round, uh, Jumeirah Golf Estates Earth Course in Dubai, United Arab Emirates. MLB Baseball, 6 p.m., MLBN, BBWAA, Cy Young Awards. NBA Basketball, 7.30 p.m., ESPN, Boston at Philadelphia, 10 p.m., ESPN, Sacramento at L.A. Lakers, NHL Hockey, 7.30 p.m., TNT, Philadelphia at Carolina, 10 p.m., TNT, New York Islanders at Vancouver, Men's Soccer, 3.45 a.m., FSU, FIFA, U-17 World Cup Group Stage, Mexico versus Venezuela, Group F, Bandung, Indonesia, 3.50 a.m., FS1, FIFA, U-17 World Cup Group Stage, U.S. at Burkina Faso, Group E, Jakarta, Indonesia, 6.45 a.m., FS2, FIFA U-17 World Cup Group Stage, France versus Korea, Group E, Jakarta, Indonesia, 2.30 p.m., FSU, International Friendly, Belgium versus Serbia in Brussels, Tennis, 6 a.m., Tennis, ATP Finals Doubles Round Robin, Doubles Round Robin, 8.30 a.m., Tennis, ATP Finals Single Round Robin, 12.30 p.m., Tennis, ATP Finals Doubles Round Robin, and 3 p.m., Tennis, ATP Finals Single Round Robin. It's a lot of sports on TV today. Now here's an article entitled, Thoughts on Petrus's Departure, Senior Day Decisions for Iowa. This is written by Chad Leistikow of the Des Moines Register. On Black Friday 2022, Spencer Petrus was greeted with rousing cheers on Iowa's Senior Day, an emotional moment for a 31-game starting quarterback who had been criticized by many of those same fans for the better part of three years. Petrus had led Iowa to a stirring victory the week before at Minnesota, and he and the Hawkeyes needed only to beat Nebraska at home to clinch a trip to Indianapolis. Those two storylines have merged again this week as Petrus, now employed as an aide for Iowa football, helping the offense and quarterbacks, has entered the transfer portal with plans to use his final year of college eligibility elsewhere. It was curious Monday to see so much public surprise about the development. Petrus has been rehabbing his shoulder for close to a year now after tearing his rotator cuff and labrum 
in that Nebraska game. More on that shortly. He understandably wants to play football again. Iowa has other plans at quarterback with Cade McNamara planning to return in 2024. So obviously, Petrus needed to enter the portal to play somewhere else. Knowing Petrus, he hated that this news leaked out Monday. He would much rather that his name isn't highlighted in tweets and headlines as the Hawkeyes, the team he's still helping, are trying to do what the 2022 team couldn't, cement their first place finish in the Big Ten West division to reach the conference title game December the 2nd at Lucas Oil Stadium. Already without star tight end Sam Laporta against Nebraska in 2022, Early game injuries to Petrus and star cornerback Cooper DeGene sabotaged Iowa's chances. A 24-17 home loss stung, and Purdue went to Indy instead. Now, Deacon Hill will try to lead the Hawkeyes past Illinois in Saturday's 2.30 p.m. matchup, which will be televised on Fox Sports 1. After having his best game in Saturday's 22-0 win against Rutgers, Hill credited Petrus for supporting him through tough times. He's just like, keep pushing forward, ignore everything else. The only guys who matter are in the building, Hill said. That's been the biggest thing for me. I talk to my family too, don't get me wrong, but the biggest thing is there's no need to explore the outside chatter. Just be within the group, be within the team. Petrus learned that lesson during his Iowa playing years. He wants to be a coach someday, and for the last 10-plus months, he's been getting valuable training for that role. He purposely worked with the offensive line in the spring so that the quarterback room could create its own identity with transfers McNamara and Hill coming aboard. His current role entails long hours while assisting offensive coordinator Brian Ferentz in game preparations. Petrus also helps send in signals from the sideline on game days. So, Saturday will be Petrus's final game at Kinnick Stadium. Hopefully, most Hawkeye fans have gained an appreciation for Petrus's on- and off-field contributions to the program and will root for him wherever he ends up. One of the best leaders I've been, ever been around, sixth-year senior receiver and longtime roommate Nico Ragaini said, Spencer is a person who pushed me and got me in my younger days, got on me in my younger days because he wanted to see me succeed, which is something I'll be forever thankful for. He puts in countless hours every week. I feel like he got it rough here from the fans when it wasn't rightfully deserved. He's one of the greatest teammates I've ever had. This will be the third time that Iowa has entered a home game at Kinnick with a chance to clinch the West. The Nebraska loss last year is fresh in the mind. The previous instance was in 2015 when the 10-0 Hawkeyes played host to Purdue and were 23-point favorites. The day after a huge snowstorm rocked Iowa City, the Hawkeyes got out to a 20-0 lead, but things became tense in the third quarter. Purdue had cut the gap to 20-13 and was driving inside Iowa's 35-yard line with a chance to tie. But the defense got a stop, and on the ensuing drive, C.J. Bethard threw a touchdown pass to George Kittle to calm things down. Iowa won 40-20 and celebrated the West title on its home turf before going to Nebraska the following week to complete a 12-0 regular season. And this article is a lot longer than I anticipated, and it's time to move on to Dear Abby, so I guess we'll go ahead and do that. Pam? Live-in boyfriend's behavior pushes woman's boundaries. Dear Abby, I have been with my live-in boyfriend for eight years. During the last five months, he has started staying out until daylight, choosing his friends over me, snapping at me when he talks over me excuse me, talks at all and doesn't want to be around me. We have always gone everywhere together and shared our friendships with each other. There's an age gap of 16 years, but it's never been a problem. I left for a month last year, and when I caught him talking to another woman through the messaging, not platonic talk, that month I did a bit of soul-searching and set boundaries I will no longer allow to be broken.' 
Because of the past failed relationships, I have learned how to stand up and my voice and voice my opinion and care for myself emotionally. I guess my question is: Should I be concerned? Keep trying to communicate my feelings to him, or move on with my life? I have always put him ahead of any other uh, than. Any anyone other than my children and God, but He doesn't give me the same respect. Signed, lost for answers in Arkansas. Dear lost, is your boyfriend the person who is sixteen years younger? I ask because his behavior is certainly immature. In light of what you have written, it should be clear to you that he is no longer as committed to your relationship as you have been. You stated. That you have established boundaries that you will no longer allow to be broken. Good for you. It is time to reestablish them because the treatment you have been receiving is not only disrespectful but also cruel. You may have devoted years to the relationship, but from my perspective, you have invested enough. Tell him you can see that he is not happy and ask him if he wants to break up. I have a strong feeling the answer will be yes. Dear Abby, I am a 20-year-old gay man. I recently started a new job in which I thought I'd be replacing an aging coworker who is supposed to be retiring in a year. Every time I have mentioned anything、uh, to her about her retiring, she has corrected me, saying she's only going to cut back to a day or two a week. When I was hired, I was told she'd be gone in a month. I'm uncomfortable because she is politically conservative, deeply religious, and sometimes moody, which makes her difficult to be around. I have kept my mouth shut since I have been here only a month, whereas she has been here more than twenty years. I recently found out two other people had been hired for my role before I was, and both quit within six months. Should I stay and wait it out? Or follow the possibility of happiness elsewhere. Signed, hot and bothered in Indiana. Dear hot and bothered, talk with your employer about the circumstances under which you were hired. You were told you would replace this woman, and she's be, she'd be gone in a month. Exercise a little patience for another month or so, and if she's still there, ask your employer if something has changed because she's telling you she's not quitting. You deserve a straight answer if circumstances have changed. If that's the case and the job is no longer what you thought it was going to be, lot, going to be, then follow the possibility of happiness elsewhere. After you have found a new job, and you can contact Abby at www.dearabby.com or Post Office Box six nine four four zero, Los Angeles, California nine zero zero six nine. Before we close out the Des Moines Register for today, I'll read a couple things from the 50 States page from Iowa. Iowa City former court magistrate has been reprimanded for revealing the identity of a confidential informant and placing the individual's life at risk. Attorney Teresa J. Seberger has been publicly reprimanded by the state Supreme Court's Attorney Disciplinary Board. From Illinois, specifically Chicago, authorities say a firefighter has died from injuries he suffered when he fell through a light shaft at a burning building. Fire Commissioner Annette Nance Holt says Andrew Price died after being injured while battling a fire in the Lincoln Park neighborhood. From Kansas, Topeka, Kansas, Human Resources Director Jacques Russell, the longest tenured department head for the city government, is leaving city employment. Russell has resigned effective December first. City Communications Director Gretchen Spiker said. That brings us to the end of the Des Moines Register for today. I'm Scott Splavik, and my partner at the microphone has been Pam Rhodes. Earlier, you heard Barb DeHeck and Dennis May. You can listen to Iris programs on any computer or smart device at any time at iowaradioreading.org. Support for today's reading comes from the Des Moines Register, Iowa Public Radio, Iowa PBS, and BenSoundMusic.com. Thank you, only radio reading service.